love watching those little ones. Such a beautiful thing. And I checked carefully, I am supposed to be here now. As we prepare our hearts to continue to drink in God's Word and respond to it, we've been praying uh, throughout our service. Let's just continue to ask for His help one more time. Just simply, Father, we need You. And we sit with Your Word open now, asking for Your help, asking for Your guidance by the power of Your Spirit. So guard us from error and guide us from truth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I had a moment recently with several of our children in the back of our car, and one of our sons, Finn, who is just learning how to read, was starting to practice his newfound reading skills on the road signs as we were driving, and he said at one point on the road, Dad, that sign says the speed limit is 35. I said, great, good reading, Finn, good job, buddy, that's exactly right, the speed limit is 35. And then there was a pregnant pause, and a second statement came from the back. Dad, so why are you going 45? (laughs) Mm. At that moment, I thought, why are we teaching him to read again? (laughs) Anyone been there? As a parent, you've had those moments, perhaps as a grandparent or as somebody in a position of authority. How's that old saying go? Do as I say, not as I... Not as I do. The point is, of course, that there's some things in life that we say and even believe to be true, and yet sometimes we really struggle to put those same things into practice. Well, the same dynamic can play its way out in our faith. Take prayer, for instance. Today, we're about to hear Jesus, the Lord, teaching on how we should approach our Heavenly Father in prayer. And my guess is, knowing many of you in this room, that most of us here already believe that prayer is important. The question is, are we doing it? That's the difference, I think, between what I'll call conceptual theology and functional theology. You know, this gap that can exist between what we say we believe, like in our heads intellectually, and then the things that we actually believe enough to put into practice. Well, today's passage begins with our Savior in prayer again. We've seen this over and over and over throughout Luke's glorious gospel, Jesus in prayer And and seeing the power and the primacy of prayer in his master's life, one of the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. So I can't think of a better way to approach Jesus' words and teaching on prayer than just to adopt that posture. Lord, would you teach us here at Friendship Community Church to pray? If you haven't already, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to where we've left off in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Luke 11, verse 1. If you're using the church Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, that's on page 816. Again, Luke 11, 1. Let's read together. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, 
as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is... God's Word. We'll take it from the top as we work our way back through the the Lord's Prayer here. That's really what this passage has affectionately come to be known as, this instruction on prayer from the lips of Jesus Himself. We call it the Lord's Prayer. But some of you who are familiar with the Lord's Prayer may have been thinking as we were reading along, wait a minute, something sounds a little different here. Well, that's because there's two different versions, two iterations of the Lord's Prayer in Scripture. Here in Luke chapter 11, and then another version in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, which leads some people to ask, well, which is it? Which is the right prayer? Which is the proper Lord's Prayer? The answer, obviously, is both. This is Scripture. This is God's true Word to us, inspired by His infallible, perfect, omnipotent Spirit. Both prayers are rightly and should be rightly seen as the Lord's Prayer. And we know that Jesus gave this teaching about prayer at least two different times, probably more, that we don't hear about. How do we know that Jesus gave this teaching two separate times at least? Well, First, as we look at these two prayers in Matthew 6 and here in Luke 11, we see that their context, their wording, and their timing is different. Even the location, which I find interesting, the location where Jesus was praying when he gave these prayers was different. And in Matthew 6, Jesus taught this teaching on prayer in Galilee. He was In the early part of his ministry, he was teaching up north in Israel. These were his stomping grounds. This was part of the Sermon on the Mount in his home region there in Galilee. Yet here in Luke, 
we see that this teaching on prayer, same subject, different teaching, different place. It's later in his ministry. Jesus is no longer in Galilee. We just read a few weeks back. He's set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. And it shouldn't strike us as weird or strange that someone would teach on the same important thing twice, perhaps using similar but different words. After all, anyone who repeats anything important knows this is kind of how it goes. Teachers, bosses, coaches, parents, anyone who's met a child. If you're trying to speak something important and you're covering the same material, very often we say it more than once. Some of us may even have uttered the phrase, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Especially if it's important, right? We'll repeat it if it's important. Like God the Son teaching on how to communicate to God the Father. So, Although the content of this Lord's Prayer here in Luke 11 is really the same as the content of Matthew's prayer, the the concepts, the prayer is of the same essence. We see that the wording is a bit changed, and I don't think we need to be swayed by that at all. If we're looking, after all, to the Lord's Prayer as merely a formula, as some sort of spiritual algorithm for getting God to do what we need or to earn points with Him, we're, of course, thinking about the Lord's Prayer in a very wrong and twisted way. Jesus is less concerned with us praying through a rote formula than He is with us communicating with our Maker. So... I think, before we begin to pick apart the Lord's Prayer itself in Luke 11, we should just stop and acknowledge the beauty of this, that Jesus is teaching us on prayer, and that He taught us repeatedly on prayer in the same essence, with the same glorious truths, yet with different words in slightly different ways. And and I think we can stop at this point then and, and make some application to our lives. Perhaps it's true, I know it's true, that there are some, even in this room, who when someone says, let's pray, become paralyzed with fear. Because we're concerned about what others will think of the words that we say. We're concerned, perhaps, that we don't have the right words to say, whether out loud or even alone before God. What do you say to Almighty God? Well, friends, I think by Jesus' example, we can learn if we're thinking that way about prayer, we're not thinking rightly about prayer. We dare not confuse prayer with verbal eloquence. It's not a show or a performance. We are communicating to our Maker, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who gave us our tongue and knows what we can do and can't do with it. So I just want to encourage you, just as we see the differences in the way that Jesus teaches about prayer, same content, different words, I hope that gives us encouragement to pray to the Lord without feeling paralyzed by finding just the perfect words to say to Him.
All right. Well, let's look now into the content of this prayer that Jesus models for us, that he teaches for us here in Luke chapter 11. He starts his prayer in verse 2 by addressing it to whom? Well, the word he uses is Father. And I want to submit to you, Friendship Community Church, no matter how familiar you are or think you are with the Lord's Prayer or with prayer or with this passage, that you should slow down for just a moment and marvel that the sovereign God of heaven and earth, the one who spoke and spun the galaxies into existence, invites you through the words of His Son to call Him Father. (laughs) This is a pretty big deal. After all, this... This sort of thing didn't just happen, us just thinking about God as our personal heavenly Father. As a matter of fact, this wasn't a thing even in Scripture until Jesus stepped on the scene. Never before had an individual presumed to speak to God personally, intimately as my Father before a 12-year-old boy named Jesus stepped into the temple. That's the first time in all of Scripture that an individual, that a a unique human person could claim such an intimate relationship with Almighty God. And now, because Jesus is here, because of who He is and what He's done and what He's about to do, the concept of Father becomes one of the primary ways that Jesus teaches us to relate to. To God Most High. He teaches us to address our prayers to our Father in heaven. After all, isn't that what he said when he rose from the grave? After his resurrection from the dead, he he gives the command to a mind-blown Mary Magdalene, Go, Mary, and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You see what Jesus is doing? Because of his life, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, Jesus can rightly say, and he does teach us to relate to God as Father. The one who has always been my Father is now yours. Man. That's why Scripture declares that to all who received him, received Jesus, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right, what a right, to become children of God. Now, I don't know what kind of a day you're having. I don't know what kind of a month or year you're having, friend, but I hope this encourages your soul. I don't know if this thought has ever occurred to you, but I remember as a little kid thinking about, what if I were royalty? Yeah, like what, what if I were born into like some ridiculously wealthy or royal family? Think, think of all of the rights and privileges. Think of all I wouldn't need to worry about by, na- by way of resources and experiences. Forget that. 
Almighty God, through His Son, our Savior, teaches us to call Him Father. Wow. That's how He begins. So it begs the question then, what, what are we praying to this heavenly Father? Well, the first thing Jesus teaches us to do is to express something about God's nature and character. He says, you should say, Father, hallowed or holy be your name. In Scripture, when someone's name is mentioned, it's not a little deal. Biblically speaking, someone's name is more than just a collection of of syllables and sounds. Someone's name is a reflection of their very character. So we're to remember, Jesus teaches us about prayer, that as we approach this God who we're to call Father, He is not just Father, He is, but He's also holy. He is set apart. He is distinct, unlike any other. And we ought not to miss the bigger principle here, that Jesus teaches us to start communicating to God by talking about God, by acknowledging the person of God. He starts his prayer not with our needs or or his desires, but with God himself. I think that's instructive for us. We'll we'll circle around there in in a bit. So he starts with who God is. God, your Father. God, you are holy. And then he moves from God's nature and character, his his name, to his reign, as it were, to the advancement of his kingdom. Look at verse 2. Your kingdom come, God. God's kingdom is everywhere he's king, which is ultimately everywhere. But in a more specific sense... God's kingdom is represented where His rule and reign has taken effect. Praying for God's kingdom is praying for the advancement of His sovereign plan and purposes. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, I hope we pray for God's kingdom to come. We're we're almost borrowing the words of Habakkuk, the old prophet, It's to pray, as Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're praying for when we're praying for the kingdom of God. God, rule and reign everywhere, over every square inch and molecule of this planet of my heart, God. Let your kingdom come. So Jesus' model for prayer starts with God. It begins with an upward orientation. Let's stop. I just want to ask you simply, is this how you pray? When you go before the Lord, is this something that you do? Now, don't seize up. Again, remember the, the, the first point. The, the point of prayer is not to say just the right things in just the right ways. It's not that you can never just go to God and ask something first, but but Jesus models something different, doesn't He? Jesus models us approaching our Heavenly Father with Him first, not our need. Is that how you pray? How much of my... Just ask yourself this diagnostic question this morning. How much of my praying is asking God for things versus 
giving Him glory for who He is and for praying for His agenda, for His kingdom, even higher than my own. The point then, if I can put it this way, is that we should cry glory before we cry gimme, right? Glory comes before give me. However, always, we've got to guard our boxy hearts from trying to box God in and, and, and overcorrecting. We, we, because we put God's name and God's purposes first in prayer, that's how Jesus instructs us to do it, this in no way, friends, in no way squashes or invalidates the importance of bringing our own personal needs before Him. We should not feel wrong or guilty for doing so. Why? Well, because keep reading. Because Jesus teaches us to do that too. More specifically, as we continue on in this model prayer that Jesus gives in Luke 11, Jesus invites us to pray for three things, I think. For provision, verse 3. For pardon, verse 4. And for protection, later on in verse 4. Provision, pardon, protection. I love how Dale Ralph Davis puts it. I I just had to show you this quote. Davis says, We pray for provision because we're dependent. We pray for pardon because we're guilty. And we pray for protection because we're fragile. Isn't that true? Let's take them one at a time. Verse 3. Jesus teaches us to go to God asking for provision. He calls it daily bread. Now, there is a debate, uh, excuse me, a debate among scholars, of course there is, as to whether this daily bread Jesus is talking about means the bread that you need for today presently or the day uh, the bread, excuse me, that you're going to need for tomorrow. And as fascinating as that academic debate is, what I find interesting is it really doesn't change Jesus' overall point, does it? Whether our daily bread is the bread we use today or the bread we're going to need to use tomorrow, it doesn't change the point that we are called by God to live in daily dependence upon Him for our basic needs. By the way, We see this bread thing, this bread thread, if you will, just woven throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, this daily provision theme symbolized by bread. Remember back, way back in your Old Testament, like Exodus 16 back, what God did to provide and to sustain His people? Just give you a little snippet, just a single verse from Exodus 16.4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven. Think about that language. Rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Sounds kind of like daily bread, wouldn't you say? A day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Manna, by the way, Jesus will later say, I am that. 
I am the manna. I am the bread, the, the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus teaches us to pray for bread even as he becomes that bread that we need. And notice the, the point, I think, about this daily provision. We're not asked to pray for our daily caviar. Not that God's rich blessings are a bad thing. But the, the point here is the needs in front of us. Just the needs sufficient for today. And when you try to grab for more than God provides you, it has a way of just rotting away in the end. It's what happened to the manna that they foolishly collected more than they needed when God told them not to. And I feel like that might be true of us trying to clamor for more than we need today as well. Daily bread. That's what God calls us to ask for. Verse 4, provision we're to ask the Heavenly Father for, for ultimately all, all that we need comes from Him. Verse 4, we're also called to ask for pardon. He says, and forgive us our sins. We're in need of ongoing forgiveness before our Heavenly Father. And Jesus is teaching us to incorporate a pattern of praying for forgiveness. I think that's a pretty clear indicator here that the Christian life is one marked by continual repentance. Now, of course, it's true that in Christ, we are fully and finally forgiven. In Christ, your sins yesterday, today, and even tomorrow have already been dealt with. He said, it's finished. I've paid for them. And yet, as we're relating to God in real time, here and now, there's a sense also in which we are to acknowledge sins as we commit them. Though Jesus paid the price and our need for continual repentance before the Lord. It's like the old hymn puts it so well. I'm prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Scripture says it even better than the <laughs> hymn writer in 1 John 1, verse 8. The Apostle John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus gives us an indicator here as he's speaking about teaching us to pray to God for this daily forgiveness of sins that just like we have been forgiven, we ought to extend that same forgiveness to those around us. As a matter of fact, I think indicator is the right word. The, the way in which, somehow the way in which we forgive or withhold forgiveness from others shows something about the nature of our own hearts or lives in Christ. When we forgive, it's like we're bearing the family resemblance. Jesus tells a parable about this too. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. If you're, and I just invite you, we're not, this isn't the purpose of our sermon here today, but if you're struggling with unforgiveness in your life, 
Write this down. This is the most important thing you can do today. Read and pray through Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It's Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, where Jesus essentially says that this one servant who's been forgiven a mountainous debt that he could never touch, and then turns around and withholds forgiveness from someone who owed him a much smaller debt. It's just incompatible in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. When, when you have a sense for how much God has forgiven you, the vast debt that you owed eternally before a holy and perfect God, then, then who are we, no matter how grievous the offense, to turn around and withhold that forgiveness from others? The, Jesus teaches us, as we're asking for forgiveness, almost to be reminded that that we need to extend that same forgiveness to others. Provision for pardon, and lastly here, as Jesus is working His way through this brief prayer, He teaches us to ask for protection. See that in the the second half of verse 4, Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Now, let's be careful. It's not as though God Himself is the one who tempts us. James says as much in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. We're not praying, lead us not into temptation because God Himself is tempted to tempt us. No, we're, we're taught to ask not to be led in temptation because in our weakness, in our fragility, Jesus knows that the way that we receive help is to come to Him asking for spiritual protection. In our time of temptation, in our time of need, He's the one who has the strength to protect. After all, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's something deeper happening when the darts of the enemy fly against us. Lead us not into temptation. Oh, Lord, how weak I am. Protect me. That's the prayer. Protect me from the evil one. Protect me from myself. All right. Now. This glorious pattern for prayer that Jesus gives, starting with God and then genuinely moving to our own need, is not just one that he sort of leaves alone and then switches subjects. Now, Jesus, here as he's teaching about prayer, proceeds after his prayer, immediately after his prayer, look at verse 5, he chases this prayer with a parable. Now, golly, it was... A while back, where we were doing a little sermon series on some of Jesus' parables, and essentially what a parable is, is it's something intended to mirror a heavenly reality. The, literally, the meaning of the word parable is to throw alongside something. So as Jesus here in Luke 11 is teaching on prayer, he finishes his teaching, and then he proceeds to throw a parable alongside this heavenly truth so that we can understand how this thing works. And here's the parable in verses 5 and following. 
Now, before we <laughs> dive in to the parable that elucidates the prayer he's just made, let's not fail to see, I'm getting ahead of myself here, let's not fail to see the Christ connection here. Jesus has taught us how to pray. He's taught us the substance or the stuff of faithful prayer. And I think it's amazing that as we work our way through this prayer that Jesus has given us, that we see this beautiful truth that the one who is praying the prayer also is the one who has become the answer to our prayer. Think about it. Jesus teaches us to say, Father, how can we come to God as Father? Well, through Him. In Him alone. He teaches us to call God holy, hallowed be your name. How can we approach a holy God and call Him Father? Well, clothed in His righteousness alone. Jesus teaches us to say to God, your kingdom come. Jesus teaches us to say to God, God Lord, give us, our, give us our bread, provide us our needs, even as He came to be the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us of our sins as He is the one who has come to offer up that possibility for us. Lead us not into temptation as He would go to the garden and conquer every temptation so that we can follow Him, our perfect and matchless Savior. I, I love it here as we're thinking about and hearing this instruction for Jesus. This is more than just some sort of an academic exercise or formula. As we pray, not only do we want to model and mirror the content of our prayer after Jesus' prayer, but we want to look to Him as the one who has become the answer to the prayer. This is a Christ-centered prayer indeed. All right, now for the parable. Jesus explains his prayer by saying, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I will tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This is a scene of a common home in first century Palestine. Many of Jesus' listeners would have related to the setup that he was laying out. Notice how the whole family seems to be asleep in one room. Probably the only room in the house. Can you imagine that? And to open the door would not have been a light thing. The doors at that time in the middle of the night would have been locked with a beam of wood that would have been placed through rings on the door to make sure nobody could come in. So can you imagine in a little one-room house with your kids on a mat all around you, stepping through the dark, I'm going to take this beam out of the door and swing this thing open to, see, to hear what the neighbor has to say. The whole blessed house is going to wake up. And as a father of young children, I think that is punishable by like 40 lashes minus one. Right? That's a big deal to wake a sleeping kid. And here comes this shameless friend. I think that's the right word. Shameless friend 
asking for bread. Just listen to how Jesus describes this guy in verse 8. Because of his impudence, that's a strong word, his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. It's interesting to note that this is the only time in all of Scripture that Greek word that we translate here as impudence is used. The only time in all of Scripture. What's it mean, impudence? Well, the the King James Version of the Bible translates that Greek word importunity because of his importunity. Well, that clears it up, right? The NIV, just trying to make sense of this Greek word into, into English, renders that phrase because of his shameless audacity. And I think that's pretty close to the mark. Literally, that that Greek word carries the sense of lacking sensitivity to what is proper. That's what this friend is like. This friend hasn't a clue to the right way to act. Lacking sensitivity to what is proper. His shameless audacity causes him to come with boldness to his friend and dogged persistence. And Jesus lays this parable before us to say, this is how you relate to God. You come boldly. You come shamelessly. From the outside looking in, it almost seems like it's scandalous that you should be coming before God in this sort of a way. Come shamelessly with your need before God. Come boldly and come continuously. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened. And I think it's helpful to know that those three verbs, ask, seek, knock, are in the continuous tense. In other words, this asking and seeking and knocking is not meant to be a one-time thing. Keep asking, Jesus is saying. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. So the idea here is of someone who is coming before the Lord with a shameless, almost audacious request, and he won't quit. He's just coming and coming and coming and coming. And you say, well, this is a weird picture, isn't it? To kind of think of our Heavenly Father as a begrudging friend receiving this request at midnight? Well, that's actually the whole point. The idea is not that God is like a withholding, begrudging friend, because Jesus here in this parable is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look at verse 13. If you then, he says, who are evil, ah, that stings, doesn't it? And it's true. You who are evil, who are stained with sin, you know how to give good gifts to your children. He ends the parable with a how much more. You might want to like underline that or highlight that or take a note. That's sort of the point here. How much more will the heavenly Father give? 
God is not like that stingy friend. God is not like that begrudging guy. Your heavenly Father, your perfect Father, is inviting you to come boldly before Him, persistently before Him. And if, and if that guy, or if you wicked people, can do the right thing in the right way, how much more will the judge of heaven and earth not do what is right? That's the point. And I think it's glorious that what Jesus says here in Luke 11 is not only how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him. Look at the end. Verse 13. How much more will the heavenly Father give what? Who? the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Now, this guy wasn't asking for the Holy Spirit, was he? But God is prepared to give something much greater even than was requested. Jesus takes it up a notch here. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's true We see elsewhere in the Gospels that that God will give good things to those who come and ask for good things, but but Luke just shifts it into hyperdrive here. God is prepared when you come before Him boldly in Jesus' name, asking, seeking, knocking to give of His very self. God gives you God. That's the point. What a promise. What a gracious Father. Sometimes, friends, I'll just state the obvious here. The best thing for God to give you is not always the thing that you've asked for. The best possible gift for God to give you or me is Himself. It's His sustaining Spirit. It's His empowering Spirit to do in us what we can never do on our own. There is no greater gift. Now, that's sort of the guts of this thing, just a rough sketch. And I wanted to leave a a little bit of time here at the end to address an objection. Because I know that there are some here who are thinking, man, this sounds beautiful, Zeb. Just fantastic. But you know what? I've tried this. I've tried to come to God and pray persistently for this huge thing in my life. Some here might have this objection. Well, what happens when you do this and and you don't receive? When you come to God pleading with Him over and over and over again, even for a righteous cause, for the salvation of a loved one, for for physical healing, for, for something that you've been persisting in before the Lord, and yet He still seems not to be answering. He still seems like your prayers are bouncing off a brazen sky. What do you do with that? Especially since verse 10 says, everyone who asks, receives. It's a good question, and we should think about this biblically, because this passage contains a powerful truth about prayer. Of course, this is Jesus giving us a pattern, a model for prayer to follow, but although this passage contains a glorious truth about prayer, friends, this 
is not the only truth that Scripture gives us about prayer, is it? So surely Jesus wouldn't advocate that we read this passage about prayer and throw the rest of our Bibles away. (laughs) Because God and His whole counsel rounds out this teaching about how we frame what we hear here and elsewhere about coming to Him in prayer. This is not the only thing Jesus teaches about coming to Him. And friend, if our takeaway is that if we just come to God persistently and boldly and we keep asking and we keep knocking and we keep uh, just pleading with Him that God is duty-bound to give us what we want, if that's your takeaway, then you're going to be very disappointed when God answers some of your prayers with a no or with a not yet. Because, again, God gives us a whole lot more in Scripture to help us understand prayer than this, as true as this is. Remember, after all, He taught us to pray to this heavenly Father, saying, Thy kingdom come. Matthew gives us a little more information. Your will be done, Lord, not mine. There's a higher good here, even if I can't see it. So there's more to this thing than being persistent, namely, just, just one, God's sovereignty, which is not dissolved as we read this parable. God is still in control. God still has a plan, and He knows best. We see this, too, throughout Scripture. Some notable examples. Some of you may remember when the Apostle Paul pleaded with the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times, to have what he calls the this thorn in his flesh removed. God's answer, uh-uh. My grace is made sufficient in weakness, Paul. There is a purpose even in the pain. Remember Moses, the prophet of God, standing, looking over the promised land, pleading with the Lord to enter. God said, stop asking me about this, Moses. Just this past Wednesday, we were working through the book of Genesis together, and we were in Genesis Genesis chapter 17, where Abraham has been promised a child from God, and he's got one. He kind of took the circuitous side path to get there, and he says to God, oh, that Ishmael may stand before you. And God's answer, no. Now, he goes on to bless Ishmael in different ways and to make him fruitful. But but do you see, even to his choice servants, God says, no. And every good parent does that, don't they? Because they know best. Because they've got a better plan. And the perfect one that we're called to call Father, we can trust to make these kind of judicial decisions. You agree? We don't ask, James says, sometimes because we, we, we ask with selfish motives or intent. Sometimes we don't ask because we're asking something that's just not in God's plan. So how do we know? Do we just give up and throw the baby out with the bathwater? God, you're going to do what you want anyway. No, 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 no. We come to the one who holds the stars in his hand, who knows the number of hairs on our head, the one to whom we've been caught Uh, taught, excuse me, to call Father, 
and say, Lord, your will be done. I trust you. And I've got some needs, Lord. Would you provide? Would you protect? Would you pardon? And ultimately, Lord, not my will. Your will be done. We could spend all kinds of time talking about all the outrageous stuff. Those of us who are parents or grandparents or kids have asked for us. The Thomas House, we've been asked for a pet tiger, a flamethrower. He's, he's, he's a good father, and he just knows best. So, we ought not, friends, to push this parable to say more than it's intended to say. Jesus is giving us a framework. The framework is, start with God. He's worthy of your praise. Declare that He is holy. He's hallowed. Remember that He's Father. And then, in view of who God is, bring Him your requests and bring them boldly, bring them shamelessly, and yet trust that He's the God, not just who gives you the right things you're asking for, He gives you the best things that you need, even His very Spirit to sustain you. Don't lose heart. And as we close here, I'll just make one more final observation. That's this. Did you notice that this prayer was intended by Jesus to be prayed corporately? If you look at it, the language is not, give me my daily bread, forgive me my sins, lead me not into temptation. He says, give us. Our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. This, of course, doesn't mean that you can never pray this prayer individually. It's a glorious prayer for you to pray individually and personally. But at least it means this, that the family of faith, as we come together under the banner of Jesus Christ, ought to pray this. We ought to pray it together. And so I want us to end by doing that now, just to, to comb back and say, Jesus, thank you for teaching us to approach our Heavenly Father. Now let's do that and obey Him. I think it's on the screen now. Would you pray with me? Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and now sing, the one to whom we've been praying, before the throne of God above.